Hello and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is the energy storage landscape in North America, and I am really excited today to be joined by Mark Chupka. Mark is the Vice President for Research and Programs at the Energy Storage Association, and he has a long history in government and private industry and now leads ESA's research and content efforts. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, please tell us a bit about yourself, the ESA, and your role there. Well, thanks for inviting me, John. I really appreciate it. I'll start with ESA. ESA has been around since 1990, and it's the Trade Association that represents the stationary energy storage industry. We have about 200 members from all segments, manufacturers, integrators, developers, independent power producers, utilities, etc. And it's a very diverse group of members. I joined uh, in February 2020, and uh, my role is to do a bit of everything. We have a significant program of webinars, seminars, conferences, and uh, I help develop the content and uh, organize those uh, programs. I've been knocking around Washington, D.C. since the mid-1980s and with a series of jobs that all involve energy and environmental issues and particularly energy sector and climate policy. I've been at the Congressional Budget Office, the Joint Economic Committee of the Congress, White House staff, Department of Energy, and I was a consultant for about 20 years. And ESA is the first trade association that I have worked at, and I'm delighted to have joined when I did because storage is a very hot topic at the moment. This is my first podcast, so this is a new experience for me. We are delighted to be your first podcast. You've done so much, and uh, it's good to be the first here. Now let's jump into storage. So Battery storage is now part of the mainstream energy conversation. Utility scale projects are, are developed all over the country. We hear about it a lot, but it really wasn't too long ago that storage felt like a lot of hype and not too much action. How did the technology gain traction so quickly or did it? Was it a long time coming? Well, there's lots of reasons why energy storage seems to have taken off, but mostly it's cost reductions and uh, performance improvements that met certain thresholds that uh, created sort of a tipping point for energy storage. In fact, there was a study issued last week by some MIT researchers that looked very carefully at the data over the last 20 to 30 years, and they determined that there's been an overall 97% cost reduction in lithium-ion batteries since 1991, and there's more potential cost reduction in stationary batteries than there are in EV at this point because there's less pressure to have uh, performance uh, improvements like energy density and that sort of thing. You're not far off with the niche applications history here. Really about six or seven years ago, for example, in PJM, frequency regulation was the common application for large-scale batteries. And at the time, widespread use was projected based on further cost reductions that were, of course, predictions and not yet reality. So it really did seem like hype, and it was taken as hype by some folks. But a couple of years back, costs reached a point where a lot of applications became cost effective and uh, policies in states like California and New York started to target storage. 
and deployments skyrocketed. And that's the phase we're in right now. Yeah. So what are those applications that we're seeing in places like California and New York and really all over the country too? Well, it's a long list. Batteries are exceptionally flexible and versatile assets, and there's a diverse set of applications. We're seeing batteries more being used for capacity or resource adequacy in electrical grid. Certainly, energy arbitrage and time shifting has always been something that batteries are quite good at. This, of course, both of those applications have a lot to do with renewable integration, as well as ancillary services like reserves, ramping, frequency control, black start. But we're also seeing batteries used as transmission and distribution grid assets. We're seeing batteries in microgrids increasingly. And then, of course, behind the meter, we see batteries enabling customers to control their power consumption and manage costs. So that's an incomplete list, but gives an idea of the uh, very diverse set of applications that we're seeing batteries. Yeah, and we'll jump into a few of those in a few minutes in more detail. But talk to me about the public policies that help bring battery storage to the mainstream I mean, are we seeing these policies at the federal level, the state level, the utility level? And how do these policy layers interact with each other? Well, some of this policy has been fairly recent. I would put sort of the watershed moment as FERC's Order 841, which was issued in just 2018. And that basically said that in organized markets across the U.S., the FERC jurisdictional markets, wholesale markets, that the market operators had to pay storage for what it can provide. And uh, that was very important for the market. And obviously, implementation of that is ongoing. But uh, that gave storage a fair shot at providing services for the grid. States, you know, such as New York and California uh, have targets, and uh, those have been very effective at incentivizing storage deployments. PUCs and utilities in many states are beginning to assess the value of storage investments in grid modernization efforts. So we're seeing a lot of storage assets on the distribution networks as well as transmission. Recently, uh, just a few months ago, Order 2222 by the FERC will certainly boost the use of storage as behind-the-meter assets can now participate in wholesale markets. Uh, There's been some good national lab and DOE research that has led to new technologies. And of course, policies that boost renewable energy on the grid indirectly boost storage. I don't see the policies so much as interacting as instead they sort of accumulate to foster an environment where deployments can accelerate, which further reduces costs and sparks competition and innovation. The big ticket policy now that uh, ESA has been very involved with is the standalone storage investment tax credit, or the ITC, that recently made an appearance in the administration's Build Back Better infrastructure plan. And this is a very important policy that will help reduce the cost of investing in storage. And this could really turbocharge storage deployments if it's enacted by Congress. Yeah, and this type of investment tax credit, this was the same type that was used to kind of do the same thing, turbocharge renewable investments, right? 
That's right. It was uh, extremely important a few years ago. It's at a much lower level for wind now, but solar uh, still enjoys a significant investment tax credit. So while we're on the topic of wind and solar, explain the relationship between storage and the rise of renewables like wind and solar and, and how they interact and how they're kind of tied together. It's a great issue and it's still coming into focus in a lot of ways. The renewables got started without storage. So think about 10 15, maybe 20 years ago. So the connection was pretty non-existent. But when renewables first arrived on the grid, people thought about interacting with the grid and promoting reliability and that sort of thing. And the first 1%, maybe to 5% penetration by renewable generation was just handled by the system by moving other generation assets up and down and dealing with transmission and that sort of thing. So there really wasn't any connection. Now, as renewables grew as a contribution to energy on the grid, and people who analyze grid operations started to look at it and say, well, you know, maybe 5% penetration isn't a big deal, but 5 to 10% would be problematic. And uh, that would require the addition of more gas turbines, for example, to maintain reliability for capacity purposes. And so about 10 years ago, if you asked the question, well, how do you expand renewables? People would have pretty much answered, well, just build more gas turbines, and which might be expensive, but that's the path. At the same time, going to 20% renewables was considered kind of out of bounds and very costly. And now we have a different situation, though. Now we have movements toward electrification, for example, in, of our electric vehicles uh, in the transportation sector, as well as decarbonization. So as you increase the amount of renewables on the grid in an effort to decarbonize, people are no longer looking at gas turbines for capacity purposes, because that would take back some of the emission reductions that you would expect from an increased contribution of renewables. Now that people are talking about 50% renewables on the grid and beyond within a decade or so, that really can't happen without storage. It's just not feasible to have that high a contribution of renewables and expect decarbonization, in other words, not being able to build gas turbines to accommodate intermittent renewables. So I think this is kind of emblematic. Last week, there was a big study issued called the Los Angeles 100% Renewable Study. It came out, it was done by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and it studied how the city of Los Angeles could derive 100% of its power consumption from renewable energy. And storage was a huge part of that story. And so I think in the last two or three years, serious analyses of very high penetrations of renewable energy or very ambitious emission reduction targets have begun to include storage as an option. And where storage is included as an option, these big analyses find almost 
universally that storage will be used and in fact is necessary. So right now is a very tight connection between energy storage and renewables. Yeah, I think that's just an incredible story how they kind of started off as two discrete technologies and weren't necessarily connected, but now they really are connected at the hip and you really can't have one without the other, particularly on the renewable side where it just is absolutely necessary to be able to add renewables and also add reliability and capacity. That's exactly what's happening right now. And uh, that connection is only going to become tighter over time. Yeah, I think so too. But, you know, to this point, we've talked really about utility scale storage. Is that where you kind of see the market heading? You mentioned microgrids before. Is this market going to pick up too? Or are we seeing a more of a decentralization in storage like we're seeing with renewables in general? Well, you're seeing sort of both things happening. Utility scale storage is getting bigger and bigger as particularly as it's connected to larger and larger renewable installations. And also, smaller installations are proliferating as well. This is the, again, sort of the diverse application of battery storage technology. Microgrids are, I think right now, a very important market for batteries. And microgrids are both getting smaller and bigger. And batteries that are serving microgrids are getting smaller and bigger too. So there's really just a very diverse scale of this technology that is that is appearing, and that's not going to change. Yeah, and I think as we kind of get further into the future and we see some of these more diverse applications coming out, especially in campuses that need their own reliability or have their own reliability issues, I think you're going to see some pretty innovative approaches there with on-site solar, on-site renewables coupled with storage and, and really having some interesting microgrid technologies. Absolutely. And we're seeing that started, I think, a lot of that in military bases that, uh, you know, that have very high reliability requirements. And uh, I think it's going to get into other markets fairly quickly. I think it's a great thing. You know, one of the things about batteries that I think are somewhat overlooked is their modularity and scalability. A small battery can perform one function and a large battery can perform another function, but the two batteries are basically distinguishable only by size. They can be the same technology. And that really, I think that encourages the search for applications of batteries of varying sizes. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, uh, that flexibility point you just made. But to this point, we've been talking about battery storage, but energy storage has been around in one form or another for many decades. Pumped hydro is a good example. Are there other storage technologies we should be looking at also? Yeah, the technology landscape is changing rapidly. But sticking with pump storage for a moment, it's true, it's been around for many decades. And there's currently 23 gigawatts of pump storage hydro on the U.S. grid. And there's actually been a revival of interest in building some new pump storage in the last few years. So there may be more of that coming, which was quite a dormant technology for some time. Batteries continue to evolve, and there's all sorts of different types. There's certainly new chemistries for lithium-ion batteries, and those are being explored. Practically a new one is announced every week, and uh, there's a lot of evolution in that. But uh, beyond lithium-ion, there's sodium-based batteries, zinc-based batteries. People are looking for solid-state batteries. And then on the other hand, flow batteries, which are uh, liquid-based that have very long durations and can store a lot of energy. 
So the battery space itself is evolving quite rapidly. Then there are other concepts that continue to get attention. There's thermal concepts, uh, so-called aqueous air and chirogenic approaches to using electricity to create thermal changes, you know, hot or cold, and then using that uh, the gradient to reverse that and restore the electricity. There's mechanical concepts that continue to evolve. And of course, there's hydrogen, and that's both a storage medium as, as well as an energy carrier. And uh, that's gotten some attention recently as those concepts have been explored and investments actually flowing. Yeah, we just actually recorded a show about hydrogen in the EU where it's uh, really kind of taken off now. And one of the, the key takeaways was that we should think of hydrogen as a way to store and transport renewable energy as opposed to thinking of it as a fuel source. Is hydrogen close to having its kind of, quote, battery moment in North America, or is it still in that kind of hype phase? Hydrogen has been in a hype phase for several decades, but it is a very flexible element. And I think its time has come, and certainly Europe has been more aggressive on this, on hydrogen than than North America. But uh, there's been some building excitement here as well. You know, hydrogen is flexible. If you think of green hydrogen, which is, say, produced from wind and solar through an electrolysis process, it's a storable fuel and a deliverable fuel as well. You know, you can reconvert it back to electricity on site, and then it's just like a battery. It stores the energy. On the other hand, you can also pipe it to industrial facilities, say like a chemical plant, and use it like combusting natural gas without carbon emissions. And 10 to 20 to 30 years ago, this stuff was real pie in the sky because of infrastructure issues and cost and a whole host of barriers to really promoting the concept of the hydrogen economy, which uh, people were really talking about decades ago. Until about five years ago, when it no longer seemed so pie in the sky, it became very intriguing. It was still costly, but as people began to understand the implications of deep decarbonization, really squeezing carbon dioxide out of the energy economy, a hydrogen seemed to be a pretty feasible way to do that. It wasn't cheap, but it was doable. There's an interesting project in Utah called the Intermountain Power Project, and it's converting an old coal plant into a hydrogen electricity generation plant. And even though it's in the Utah desert, it also happens to supply the city of Los Angeles, and which I just referred to the LA 100% renewable study. So the hydrogen economy may be on the verge of its sort of battery moment. I think it'll take longer. These tend to be, hydrogen is a slightly less scalable technology, tends to be best pursued in big lumpy projects that have their own difficulties. But as we're looking at truly reducing in a profound way the amount of carbon dioxide that we emit from our energy economy, I think hydrogen not only has a place, but will become, maybe in a decade, maybe a little bit longer, will become a real linchpin of that effort. 
I've heard this kind of what I think is a false dichotomy between, you know, lithium ion batteries versus hydrogen and mostly in the kind of transport arena. But I think, again, that is a false dichotomy. And, and one of the takeaways we had from our conversation about hydrogen in the EU was that it really is just finding where it fits in the overall mix and not a winner take all. And, and I think there will be certain applications where hydrogen is very viable. Yeah. Thinking about transport, hydrogen may or may not gain ground in the personal vehicle market, but people are thinking, well, you know, it might be a solution to long range trucking, mm -hmm. which batteries might not be quite as effective in that market. So yeah, it's going to find its own markets and um, it's going to take some time. Yeah, definitely. But I think there will be applications for it. Well, we've had a great conversation here and we kind of like to wrap up with a forward looking question. So where do you see energy storage, the market going in 10 years? Is every home going to have solar panels in a, in a storage system? Will these storage systems be connected to the grid? And how are policies kind of evolving to get us there in North America? Well, ESA has a vision of uh, 100 gigawatts of new storage by the end of this decade. We base that on a scenario of 50% renewable energy on the grid by 2030. In sort of the residential market, which is really the access point for most people to think about storage and solar panels, I think in 10 years, solar plus storage will be very commonplace in the new residential market and maybe even the norm. I think this will mostly be grid connected. I don't see that big a movement off the grid. I think people still want to be connected, but solar and storage will be part of a new home. And then there's be continued retrofits on existing houses, which of course are already grid connected. In terms of that market, the most important policies here are state level utility regulation, you know, the net metering, time of use rates, and those types of programs that let customers sell back electricity and manage the timing of purchases and sales. There's been some pushback on net metering, but I think in 10 years time, we'll have resolved some of those tensions between utilities and their distributed energy customers. And that'll take some policy evolution, but I think we'll get there. Residential and commercial customers are also looking for backup power, reliability, resilience, and batteries are going to be a big part of that, some in microgrids, but some just on a building by building or facility by facility basis. The front of the meter market will continue to absolutely set records and soar, and storage will have to keep pace with renewables and decarbonization. I just think that it will. The movements of electrification and decarbonization are going to move ahead, and that will be probably the primary market in terms of however you measure battery storage. Once supportive policies are in place, though, you know, say like the investment tax credit for standalone storage and uh, the 841 and the order 2222, I think the market takes over without a lot of further evolution that'll be necessary. The market takeoff has already begun. Last year's deployment of storage was more than the seven years prior to that combined. Let me just restate that. The amount of storage deployed last year was greater than the amount of storage deployed in all seven years prior to that. And that's incredible. That's a takeoff. And uh, you can assume, and I think it's a good assumption, that storage will follow the trajectory 
that solar PV and wind took about a decade ago. I think we'll get to that 100 gigawatts of new storage by 2030. And so we're pretty confident at ESA that that's the future of storage and that this will be the storage decade. And yeah, if you think renewables are going to continue to grow, then you have to be bullish about storage also. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. I've learned so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of the Envisioneering Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Mark Chipka of the Energy Storage Association for joining us. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and share with the network. Thanks for listening again. My name is John Sheff. I'm Director of Public and Industry Affairs for Danfoss, and we'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinion of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other web website, computer, or playing device.